Well, on behalf of the old guys, <laughs> I think Tanner just threw down the gauntlet. And let me remind you, there is strength in numbers, so uh, be prepared. In, in all seriousness, I want to take a little bit of time this morning um, to reflect on the fact that we are here worshiping in peace. Uh, Palm Sunday in Egypt this morning was not what we experienced today. As in, in at least two churches, uh, suicide bombs went off and hundreds were either killed or injured as they were worshiping, just like you and I. So may we not lose sight of the privilege that we have to be here this morning in peace. May we not take for granted the opportunity we have to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. May we not take for granted the privilege we have to be here in peace. And let's pause to pray for those who have lost loved ones, who've been hurt or injured, because they've come together like us to worship the King. And let's rejoice with them that their salvation has been known and their faith has become sight. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to take it for granted. Increasingly in our world today, we recognize that calling yourself a Christian comes with a cost. And in some places in our world today, it could cost you your life. And yet we know, Father, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we pray for those in Egypt this morning who are suffering the loss of friends that in the midst of their pain and sorrow, there would be an encouragement of the hope that they have in you. They were worshiping the risen Christ as we are this morning as well. And so, Lord, would you give them encouragement in knowing that their faith has been made sight, that they are in your presence, and your presence is among them. And as we spend our time in your word this morning, may we be reminded of the very same thing, that those truths are true for us as well. And may we gather together in a way that we worship you with a new heart of gratitude as we're reminded of the privilege that we have. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. As we look at our words this morning, the words written by the Apostle Paul, I want to remind you that it's very likely that the words that we look at are the very last words that Paul ever wrote. He's a man, by his own admission, who once gained all his confidence in the flesh. He was a man of great power and influence in that Jewish community in which he lived. He described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, a respected religious leader, a zealous Pharisee. But now, 
He's alone. In a dark and cold dungeon awaiting his death. He's been abandoned by his friends. He's been ridiculed by his enemies. And by all accounts, his life has become one big disappointment. It would be reasonable to assume that Paul is buried under a mound of of disappointment and fear as he faces his death. It would be reasonable. It just wouldn't be true. Because as we will see this morning, his final words are filled with hope. All his worldly gains, he says, he counted as loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. From Paul's point of view, he hasn't lost anything. In fact, he's gained everything. Because knowing Christ is the greatest treasure that anyone can have. And in these last hours, if that's all he has, it's enough. And yet, as we've walked through this letter, we've seen how Paul has been very honest, hasn't he? Very vulnerable about the disappointments and discouragements of his life in ministry. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, if you've ever watched Star Trek, he's not a Vulcan, right? Where he's void of any emotion, right? He's human, not humanoid. He's been honest about discouragements and disappointments along the way. He just hasn't been ruled by them. They don't dominate his thinking. He has faithfully followed Christ in a sin-cursed world. And here's what I want us to learn this morning. A faithful life bears fruit. A faithful life bears fruit, especially in moments like these. Because as the pressure is put on Paul, we see what he clings to and where he finds hope. Paul's final words are filled with hope. They reveal his trust in God's judgment, the promise of God's presence, the hope of God's deliverance. His faith is filled with that hope. And, And as we follow Christ, we need to understand that those very same things are true for us. It's how we find encouragement in the midst of disappointment because the fruit of faithfulness is a faith that is filled with hope think about that the fruit of faithfulness is a faith that is filled with hope it's someone who has learned to cling to the promises of God that's what we see in the life of Paul And I hope that that's what we're challenged to pursue as well. If you would, look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 with me. Paul continues as he closes this letter to his son Timothy. In verse 14 he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself. For he vigorously opposed our teaching." This is one of those places where Paul is being honest about the discouragements along the way. Alexander the coppersmith has been a thorn in his side. 
He has opposed Paul and his ministry at every turn. In fact, it's very likely that Alexander is the reason that Paul is in jail right now facing a death sentence. And if he caught wind that Timothy was going to visit Paul in prison, he'd come after him. And so Paul warns Timothy to be careful. Now, it's a little bit unclear exactly who Alexander is. There's a couple of options. I personally think it's the person that Paul refers to in his first letter to Timothy. So let's look at that together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writing in verse 18 says, This I command and I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, we ran into Hymenaeus in the second letter, didn't we? We talked about how he's got a new sidekick but still causing trouble. Apparently, Alexander is as well. He opposed Paul's teaching ultimately because he opposed the message of Christ. That's his blasphemy. He's opposing salvation in Christ. Once a professing Christian, now he has become an angry heretic. Timothy knew about Alexander because of all the trouble that he had stirred up in Ephesus. Alexander was on a mission to destroy the message of Christ and anyone willing to to stand for Christ. We see evidence of that world in our world today. I just spoke about what happened in Egypt just this morning. But even in our own culture, we see a different form of persecution and what we now term to be tolerance. Tolerance, by definition, is respecting people with whom you disagree. So I'm not tolerant of someone who holds my same opinion, right? I'm I'm tolerant of somebody who has a, a different opinion. And yet, in our world today, as soon as I disagree with you, how am I labeled? I'm intolerant. And when I appeal to my faith as the basis of my opinion, now I'm a, I'm a bigot. I'm narrow-minded. It's the world in which we live, where my personal opinion now becomes a personal offense, and opposition quickly turns to hatred. We see it in our world today, and I believe that's what we see happening in Paul's life as well. Alexander doesn't just hold a different opinion. He's offended by Paul's message of truth. And instead of considering that truth, he just simply wants to silence the messenger. But as we hear that, we need to be reminded, it's what Jesus promised. He says, if the world hates you, know this, they hated me before they hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. What Jesus is saying is really, in the end, their anger isn't against you. It's because of me. It's not you they oppose. It's me they hate. I believe Paul understands this because look again at how he responds to it in verse 14. 
He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul didn't take on the responsibility to punish Alexander. He didn't accept some obligation to to set the record straight. He trusted that God would have the final words. I believe Paul is living out what he wrote to the Romans. Let's look at that together. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Interesting, Paul writes this to the Romans where he is now imprisoned. And look at what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And for in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. You see, this is how Christians are to respond to injustice. And I believe this is what Paul is living out in his life right now. He's trusting in God as the righteous judge. He's the one who will have the final word. As a Christian, we don't give evil people what they deserve. In fact, we do just the opposite. We overcome evil with good. The Bible says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are to be ruled by compassion, not people of hatred. I've shared this story with you before, but it's appropriate here because it reminded me of my first years as a pastor here at Melanie Park. I remember being a little bit taken back by the unfiltered speech, the the anger and emotion that often people would speak with. And to be honest with you, as a new pastor, it was hard for me not to take it personal. So at the time, I was meeting with Bobby Dagnall, who is the uh, pastor at First Baptist here in Lubbock, and, and Bobby's a seasoned man of the ministry and had great advice. And he said, Todd, here's what I've learned to do over time. He says, as people express their emotion towards me or towards a situation, even as they're speaking, I think to myself, what has hurt you that has made you so angry? And I pray for them, even as they are verbally vomiting on me. (laughs) And he says, what that has allowed me to do is, instead of preparing my defense, I'm prepared to care to have compassion, because I don't have to set the record straight. See, I think that's what Paul is working through now. The fruit of faithfulness is an assurance of God's justice. When we trust in God's justice, I believe it opens the door for our compassion. It it shifts our attention from defending ourselves to caring for the needs of someone else is more important than our own. The Bible says that God will punish sinners, that he will set the record straight. So what that tells us, we don't have to. God will take care of that. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he is a righteous judge. The guilty will not go unpunished. The fruit of a faithful life is a dependence 
upon God's justice so that we can be a people of compassion. And we see that in the life of Paul. Look at how he continues in verse 16. He says, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. May it not be held against them. What words of compassion, right? It reminds me of what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross and and looking at those who were causing this pain. He said, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It's compassion. Here's what's happening in in the life of Paul. In the Roman judicial process, they had what was called a, a first action. Basically, it was a a preliminary hearing to determine whether there was a trial to be had. And and in this preliminary hearing, people could come into Paul's defense to to kind of speak on his behalf. But at this preliminary hearing, no one showed up. No one came to his defense. Paul says they all deserted him. And yet Paul says... May it not be held against them. You see, Paul knew that even though they deserted him, he was not alone. I think he probably understood that taking his defense meant that they would share in his fate. And he wasn't offended by the fact that people weren't standing in line to volunteer for execution, which, is he, knew, which he knew was his ultimate fate. Paul had compassion because he knew that he wasn't alone. He said, the Lord stood with me. What it reminds me of is that picture in the Old Testament when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were were put into that fiery furnace. You remember Nebuchadnezzar walks by the door and says, wait a second, didn't we put three men into the furnace? I see four. And Paul has experienced the very same reality just as those three men experienced The Lord was with him. The Lord stood with him. The fruit of a faithful life is the assurance of God's presence. What Paul says when he says, the Lord gave me strength, literally means he poured power into me. I want you to think of a a jumper cable hooked up to a battery to kind of give it a boost. The power of God was being poured out into the life of Paul. And I want you to notice how Paul employed that power. It didn't just get his engine started so that he could sit there and idle. The power of God was poured into the life of Paul so that he could go. So that he could go and share the good news with all the Gentiles. (laughs) A proclamation which Paul said was being fully accomplished. Now why would he say that? What was being accomplished here? I think Paul took encouragement by the fact that he knew that what he was experiencing as he was proclaiming the message of Christ to the leaders of the Roman world is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to him. Let's look at that. Acts chapter 23. This is the promise that I believe Paul was looking at and seeing fulfilled in those final days. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. 
Luke, the author of Acts, writes in chapter 23, verse 11, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side. There it is again. And listen to what he said to Paul. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. It was a promise of God made to Paul, and I believe that in that moment, as he faced death, he knew that that promise was being fulfilled. It's even more remarkable when you consider the fact that he is rejoicing that promise being fulfilled, knowing that he was literally days away from execution. We talked about last week. He said, the time of my departure has come, his departure being his death. Even though he's been delivered, as he says in our passage this morning, from the lion's mouth, what he's saying is, I've been given at least one more day in which to proclaim the message of Christ to the capital of the Gentile world. As long as it is today, I will rejoice in the opportunity to proclaim God's truth for just one more day. The Lord is with him. The Lord gave him strength. Paul said to the Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is a win-win situation in his mind. The fruit of a faithful life is the knowledge of God's presence. Paul has experienced this reality all through his life, beginning in that, on that uh, Damascus road when he met face-to-face with the risen Christ. And ever since that moment, Paul has con- been convinced that the Lord has been by his side, including at his defense. When everyone else deserted him, the Lord stood with him. And not necessarily because there was some visible presence of the Lord. Paul has learned to view life through the eyes of faith. It has allowed Paul to, to see God's hand at work, to know that he's never alone, that there's never a situation which is outside of God's sovereign control. The Lord has stood with him because the knowledge of God's presence is the fruit of a faithful life. It's experienced over and over again. Paul is learning to view life with eyes of faith. And what he sees is that the Lord is standing with him. He is never alone. Look at how he continues in verse 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now it's important to understand, to be reminded that that Paul did not expect to be released from jail. He's already said, the time of my departure has come. And yet, he knew he would be delivered. Look again, it says, the Lord will deliver me. So, is he confused here? Is he putting his hope in the wrong place? What is happening in the mind of Paul? I think what is happening in the mind of Paul is what I witnessed in the life of my brother when he battled cancer and said to me face to face, Todd, have no fear. I will be healed. I will be delivered. He went on to say, I don't know if it's this side of heaven or the next, but God has promised, and I will be healed. You see, Paul, like my brother, was looking at the face of death with confidence, not with fear. 
Because the fruit of a faithful life is the assurance of God's deliverance. Whether it's this side of heaven or the next, it really doesn't matter because God is in control. Look again how Paul describes it when he says, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. See, the only place that we're ultimately delivered from all evil once and for all is in the heavenly kingdom. It's the only place where there's no sickness, where there's no disease, where there's no sin. Paul looks at death as the ultimate deliverance. And in that, he rejoices. It's where his faith becomes sight because at the very moment he breathes his last breath on earth, he will open his eyes in heaven. His faith will become sight. And just the thought of that promise in the life of Paul makes him break out into spontaneous praise. Look at what he says. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then I want you to notice this very interesting way in which Paul closes his letter. Look at verse 19. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus is, I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Ebulus greets you, along with Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Isn't it interesting that Paul closes his letter with greetings and not goodbyes? He was going to die. And yet he closes his letter with greetings and not goodbye. I think in some ways it's Paul's way of saying, look, whether I'm here or not, the work of God will continue and the spirit of God is present and the power of God is among you. So greetings. Carry on in the work of ministry. He points to Priscilla and Aquila, a very faithful partnership, husband and wife, active in the life of ministry with Paul, now members of the church in Ephesus. He speaks to Onesiphorus, which he's already mentioned, as one of the few people who made their way to Rome to visit Paul while he was in prison. The others listed were other members of his ministry team, including people who lived in Rome. Now think about that. Those were the very people who did not show up at his defense. And yet, he sends greetings on their behalf. Paul shows no bitterness. His greetings are an evidence of grace. It's as if he's saying, it's okay. I understand. It's okay that you don't stand for me, but be reminded. Always stand for Christ. I may not be worth dying for, I'm not hurt by that, <laughs> but he is. He'll continue the work of ministry. And Paul finishes by encouraging Timothy to be strong in the Lord and to rely on God's grace. And I think what Paul just did in the closing of his letter was the evidence of what he's calling Timothy to live out. When you are a recipient of God's grace, you're much more free to give God's grace away. And that's what Paul has just shown to Timothy. Now, as we finish up this letter that Paul has written, I don't want us to lose sight of kind of the collective picture of what we've seen in the life of Paul. Because what is true for Paul, to the very detail, is equally true for us. In those final moments of his life, 
his faith is filled with hope. He's bearing the the fruit of faithfulness in following Christ in a sin-cursed world. He lived with the assurance of of God's justice, the assurance of, of God's presence in his life, the assurance of God's ultimate deliverance. His faith was filled with hope, even in the midst of being deserted by his friends, being ridiculed by his enemies, and just moments away from facing death. These are definite discouragements that just didn't dominate his thinking. He's not carrying the burden of bitterness or unforgiveness. He's not holding a grudge against anyone who has abandoned him. He has forgiven others just as God in Christ has forgiven him. He is giving grace just as God in Christ has lavished grace upon him. Paul is bearing the fruit of faithfulness in his life. It's a result of a faith that is filled with hope. Yes, he's experienced disappointments, but they do not dominate his thinking. They don't define him. Instead, we see Paul clinging to the promises of God. He viewed all of life with eyes of faith. You see, he knew God would not leave him or forsake him. He understood that his presence is always with him, that he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of those who are weak because God's power is perfected in our weakness. His grace is always sufficient. Paul clung to these truths. He knew them to be evident in his life. So here's what I want us to do as we finish up this morning. I want you to think about the promises that you cling to. I want you to think about those promises that are an anchor for your faith so that when things get crazy, you have something that you grab a hold of. So when you're afraid, where do you turn to address that fear? When you're hurt, where do you go to find healing? What are the promises of God that you cling to? I'm going to give you a chance to share what those are. And I'm going to begin with one of mine. I've got several. This is my favorite. Psalm 62 says this, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, and in Him I will not be greatly shaken. That's of great comfort to me when I feel shaken because I know that I've got a refuge that I can run to. So what about you? Give me just a few of the promises that you cling to. Where do you find hope? Gwen. What a great verse. Thank you. What else? Danya. And you can entrust it to him and don't have to take control of it on our own, right? Praise the Lord for that. Everlasting strength. That's an eternal strength. That there's peace for, the, for those who fix their eyes on the Lord. Those are promises that you cling to for assurance. What else? Cindy. Just think about that. What, what that's saying is, go ahead, stop for a moment and consider 
the most incredible thing you could possibly imagine God being able to accomplish and know that actually what he does is far greater than what you could ever ask or imagine. That's his promise. See, these are anchors that we need to hold on to. And you know what? I feel real confident in saying that those who are experiencing what they did this morning in Egypt are clinging to promises. That's the only place that they're going to to find hope. Now, we may not be experiencing the same thing they are this morning, but we are just dependent upon the promises of God as they are. And we need to determine what those are so that in those times where we feel shaken, we have a place to go to stand strong. We want to live faithfully so that we have a faith that is filled with hope. One that is trusting God for his justice so that we don't have to set things right. We know that he will. One that is certain of God's presence, that he is always with us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that we believe in God's deliverance, that we will be healed. I don't know if it's on this side of heaven or the next, but we will be healed. There is a deliverance that is our hope, and we cling to that promise. That is the life of faithfulness for those who follow Christ in this incursed world. So here's what I want us to do this morning. When Paul finishes out the consideration of all that God has done, he just immediately breaks out into praise. We call it a doxology, right? Well, this morning, that's how I want us to finish Paul's letter. And I hope and pray that you will sing this from your heart because you believe it's true. So, Mark, if you want to come forward, let's do that. If everybody would stand and let's sing together. Sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son,
encourage you to take that same heart of praise into your week and let it be a week of worship. Give him all he deserves. We pray this in his name. Amen. You're dismissed.